0: streaming worship service. I'm thrilled that you're obviously not here. I'm thrilled that you're not here in one sense, but also I'm thrilled that, that you're home and you'll be able to watch this, and um, I do pray that everyone is, is doing well and is safe. Uh, one of the things that I did want to share, kind of a brief announcement before we get started is um, I got a call from CareNet this week, or this past week, and they had talked about Zoom and how they were using Zoom in their, uh, not services, but in in their ministry. I saw the other churches were using Zoom as well, and so I just want to give you a heads up that uh, I purchased a Zoom account, and on Wednesday night, this coming Wednesday night at 7, we're going to do a Bible study using Zoom. Kind of another way for our church family to just stay connected to one another, and uh, we'll based the Bible study off this sermon, and so um, if you aren't able to watch this live, you can go on our website when it's listed, um, and also we'll send out via email instructions on how to download Zoom and how to use it, and also uh, some just some questions for you to ponder and kind of prepare for the Wednesday night Bible study. It'll go roughly from 7 to 8 o'clock, and so I'm excited about that, and it's just another way that we can Stay connected as a church family. It really is fascinating to me uh, to see the distinction in the world between people that have no hope and people that do. Just in their behavior, and you can see it in the grocery stores, and you can see it in in the lives. We were actually, I mean, we are really living in an unprecedented time. Uh, our kids wanted some. Donuts. So we went to Legendary Donuts. uh, Lydia and I on uh, yesterday morning. I liked it because you know me in traffic and how patient I am. Uh, There was we literally saw no car until we got to the right near Hagen and where Legendary Donuts is. Now we saw plenty of people out walking. But that's one of the nice benefits of this coronavirus is there's not our traffic problem anymore. But. It's just interesting to see people and and how they can are beginning to reconnect as families. You're seeing it on the internet, um, and so I just to be a, really a a light in a dark world right now. We have a Heavenly Father who has abundantly provided for us. We don't have to worry about running out of the basic necessities of life, and so. We're going to stay connected as a church family. We'll have that Bible study again Wednesday night at 7. We'll send out directions via the church email. And so I'm looking forward to that. Um, I want you to get your Bibles. I'm going to pray, and we're going to start our new sermon series. So if you would, at home, would you bow your heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have learned to pray and are learning to pray in all honesty through our sermon series, The School of Prayer. We want to put you first in our prayers. We want you to be glorified in us so that through us uh, you can be glorified in the church and in Jesus Christ. Lord, we do want to pray for everybody in the world, literally, that has been affected by this coronavirus. We pray for protection around our loved ones and around this, this church family. And everybody, believers and unbelievers in this world, Father, you have a purpose in all things. There is no word that proceeds out of your mouth that ever returns to you void or empty, but it always achieves the purpose for which it was spoken. There is a purpose in this global pandemic. Show us what that is. But Lord, show us where we can join you in the work that you are doing around the world. Lord, as we come to you this morning, and as we open our Bibles, as we read the Scriptures, it is my prayer that you would be glorified through this message. That your church would be built up and it would be strengthened That disciples would be made, that people would, your people, would be fed and would fall in love with you more and more and more, that our love would abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, that we may learn to live lives that are pleasing to you. Lord, speak through me this morning. May it not be me, may it be you. May it be as if you were present here speaking to us. I ask for you to exponentially make effective the gift of teaching you've given me, to touch hearts and minds, to more perfectly form the very character of Jesus Christ in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, I have, uh, or was, out of work for a couple years, a few years ago, and that meant some changes uh, to our family and our routine. My wife was working full-time, and what I had to do was then was pick up some of the responsibilities, namely, I was going to be doing some of the cooking. Now, I have grilled hot dogs, I have grilled hamburgers, and I have grilled steaks, and that was the extent of my cooking ability, but I had to learn how to cook. That meant that I spent more time in the kitchen, and it was a real learning experience for me, to say the least. I noticed things in the kitchen, this is going to sound funny, that had always been there, and had been there for the longest time, but that I had never noticed before. Let me give you an example. On a stove top, there are different size burner rings. Why? Well, you know, I, I, I saw that. I thought, well, why is that the case? Well, there are, I've learned that there are the bigger rings and there are smaller rings. And they call the smaller rings the back burner rings or, or on the back burner. Now, we're all familiar with the phrase, you, know, you put something on the back burner, and fig- figuratively speaking, I understand that. It's something that we temporarily put aside or, you know, it's just not that urgent or important. And in cooking, I learned that, you know, that you would have a maybe a, a pot that you would have been working on, and then you take it and you put it on the back burner. But then the pot that you need to be working on or whatever it is, that gets your attention, and you're working on that. All right? Now, keep that in mind, because it's kind of going to be the whole introduction for this sermon, is that I believe that we... Are living in an unprecedented backburner time. Think about that for a moment. An unprecedented backburner time. The coronavirus, the COVID-19 global pandemic, that has literally dominated the news cycle. But think about this. What news worthy topics or, or events have happened that have been put on the back burner because of the coronavirus? Think about this. What was dominating the news cycle before the coronavirus? Well, there was a Democratic Party, Cox's and primaries, right? When was the last time you even thought about that? Or how about the the Jeffrey Epstein inquiry and all that was going on with that? There was a name, and it was a significant name, a prominent name, that was linked to the Jeffrey Epstein inquiry a member of the royal family, Prince Andrew. Two weeks ago, he came out with a statement that he was not going to voluntarily cooperate with the Jeffrey Epstein inquiry. Did you know that? That would have been major news because of the Jeffrey Epstein episode and the launch of the Me Too movement. And any man that is linked to any sort of scandal with sexual abuse or domestic violence towards women, I mean, that's major news but it gets put on the back burner. The world of sports has been put on the back burner. I never thought the day would come when I would hear a Division I football coach from a major conference in Division I football, the Southeastern Conference, say this to his players a month ago about the coronavirus in football. Gus Malzahn, Head coach against Auburn University, the Auburn Tigers, he said this word for word to his players, put football on the back burner for now. Now, if you've ever worked for or have known, I mean, I've worked with college students that were involved in Division I football when I was in campus ministry. For those players, football is a 24-7, 365-day-a-year. Job really. And to put that on a back burner was just unheard of. Keeping with sports, in November of 2019, Major League Baseball was rocked with what scandal? The Houston Astros sign stealing scandal. I mean, it wasn't just sports news, it was world news in a sense. We do not hear about that anymore. Well, why? Well, it's not because of the coronavirus. That story got put in the back burner because on January 26, 2020, what happened? Kobe Bryant died in a helicopter crash. And legendary baseball player Pete Rose actually said this, that Kobe Bryant's death put the Houston Astros sign-stealing scandal on the back burner. We are living in an unprecedented back burner time. Our lives, in many ways, have been put on the back burner. Think about this. This is not the first and it won't be the last crisis where we put our lives or careers on the back burner or on hold. Has anybody ever heard of, and I'm going to read this to you, of Bob Geldof? Bob Geldof. He was an Irish rock musician. He decided to do something about the famine in Egypt. For those of you that are are watching and listening, this was back in the 80s when I was in my teens, and this was the big issue. He put his own career on the back burner and spent an entire year of his life organizing fundraising events for dozens of famine relief organizations. Bob Geldof was the inspiration behind the now famous song, We Are the World, and the Live Aid event. That Live Aid event, and through his efforts he helped raise more than $127 million toward famine relief. Now, to put that in perspective, if you were to take that money in 1985, roughly when that happened, and put it in 2020 dollar terms, Bob Geldof would have raised just under $310 million. And finally, as you may or may not know, Easter is rapidly approaching. And of course, that means one thing. That when people come to church, they will hear the classic Easter Sunday sermon on what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I have a question for you, again, to think about this morning. What happens to the topic of the resurrection of Jesus Christ after Easter Sunday. Well, very simply, as you probably can tell by now, with the phrase I've been repeating over and over again, it too gets put on the back burner, as if it's not urgent or important. Now, I faced a dilemma when I was thinking about what sermon series do I start next? We just finished the School of Prayer sermon series And the dilemma in my face is, do I start a brand new sermon series only to interrupt it in three weeks with your classic Easter Sunday sermon on the resurrection of Jesus Christ? So I began to pray about this and uh, meditate on it. And as I prayed, I started thinking about maybe I should do a more in-depth look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let me clarify this. Not your typical study on the resurrection, like medical, a medical look at it, how the beating he took and and the, the flogging and the amount of blood he would have lost and whether he was actually dead on the cross, whether he actually died and the different theories that they have out there or whether the disciples stole the bodies. Not something like that. That's kind of been done to death in a sense. But I began thinking about what are the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, And so what I did is I went on Google and I typed in literally the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I was quite frankly shocked at the amount of information that came up. Last year alone, there were a number of sermons and videos on the implications or the impact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So clearly, I was not alone in thinking about this. And so I want to do just a three-week sermon series through Easter on looking at the implications or the impact, just the far-reaching effects of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I've entitled this new sermon series, Empty, and we'll be looking at just three sermons. This one's called Resurrection Repercussions. Next week, it'll be Resurrection Repercussions Part 2. On Easter, to be Resurrection Repercussions Part 3, and I want you to say that phrase, Resurrection Repercussions, 10 times straight. Anyways, and what I did just for this morning as I start out this sermon is to begin, I simply typed the word resurrection on my computer in the PC Study Bible program that I have on my computer. I'm able to type the word in, and it'll pull up, for example, in the New Testament, every verse... That has the word resurrection in it. Just to give you a general picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to give us some definition of the implications of the resurrection before we look at the impact of the resurrection on the Trinity, on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I learned an awful lot through this sermon series. There are verses, and there'll be a lot of slides that I want you to follow with me on so you can see them and Again, we'll give you this information after. But let's just begin with talking about what I just kind of generally found as I put the word resurrection in the PC Study Bible program. For example, that Jesus is the resurrection. John eleven twenty five, 25, he is about to raise ra- Lazarus from the dead, but it says, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Briefly, Jesus says he is a resurrection life. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is the creator. He spoke when nothing existed and it came into existence. He is the source of life. He does not draw life from anywhere else. He does not resurrect to give life. He is life. Therefore, he is able to resurrect Now, the phrase, I am the resurrection and life, is one of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John that are claims to Jesus Christ's deity. So, to proclaim Jesus Christ, to understand him, is to know that he is the resurrection. And to proclaim him is to proclaim that message. He is the resurrection. And that was the early church's message. I found this kind of fascinating because of the class we've been doing in our adult Sunday school on the gospel. This was the early church's message. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. What was their testimony? What was their message? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection was barely mentioned to me when I heard the gospel. You know how the gospel goes. You're created to be in a relationship with God. Sin is your problem. It separates you from him. God provided a a solution to your problem, the death of Jesus Christ. Believe in him, and you get eternal life. One verse that we may mention briefly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That wasn't how they shared the gospel in the early church. You'll see in other verses, their gospel, their testimony was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Peter's very first sermon, in Acts chapter 2, in the day of Pentecost, he preached the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That was the early church's message. So we begin to see the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's who he is it's the early church's message, and watch this, it is, of course, to be our message. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaking, For I delivered you to you as of first importance, but I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And my question for us, again, is, is to look at what is of first importance, It's not that Jesus Christ died and it's not that Jesus Christ was buried. Quite frankly, I could die for you and I would be buried but God would not accept my death as full payment for anyone's sin and I certainly would not be resurrected into his presence. What is of first importance is what? That he was resurrected from the dead. This proves that Jesus lived a life so righteous that he was able to go right into the presence of the Father. Everybody else up to that point in history, when they died, they were separated from God. They could not live a righteous enough life. And that is to be our message, that Christ was raised from the dead. But it's not just a... a, a, who Jesus is. It's not just a message. It goes even beyond that in the implications of the resurrection. It is a reason for persecution. Again, Paul writing, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. The resurrection is to so deeply and so profoundly affect our lives that we may suffer persecution for it. Again, the implications are far-reaching. Paul was persecuted for preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's a command in here, by the way. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember his name, the totality of who he is. Yes, but also remember what? He was risen from the dead. He is not a dead Messiah. He is a living Messiah. I think that this, or I know that this is crucial in enduring persecution, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The center for the study of global Christianity in the United States, they estimate that 100,000 Christians die every year, and they're targeted because of their faith. That is 11 every hour. You may have heard of Miriam Ibrahim. She spent eight months of her pregnancy in prison in Khartoum, the capital of the Republic of Sudan, living with the dreaded expectation that she would be hanged once she gave birth to her child. Her crime she married a Christian and had been accused by the authorities of heresy renouncing her faith, even though she maintained she had never been a Muslim before in her life. Now, thankfully, she was released. But I encourage you, look online, persecuted Christians. You will find story after story of Christians that are persecuted. Why are they persecuted? They're persecuted for the, the gospel, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection is to impact you deeply to the point of possibly even being persecuted. But you also, believers, are to know the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul speaking, a very powerful verse, by the way, that I may know him and what? The power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now the Greek word for know here, as you hopefully know by now, I've talked about this before, is the word ginosko, okay? and It means much more than intellectual knowledge. For example, you know that I am the pastor at Bible Chapel. You may know that I drive a Toyota Tacoma. Obviously, you know that I'm bald, and you know that I'm a a big fan of the Ohio State Buckeyes, but those are things that you know about me. You don't know me, or many of you don't know me, as personally and as experientially as my wife knows me. She knows my likes and my dislikes. She knows uh, things that uh, if she does this, I'll really like it or, or not like it and so on my moods, what makes me happy, what makes me mad. Now, she knows these things because she has experienced them personally with me. And that's what the word gnosko means. It is a personal experiential knowledge. And this is what Paul is saying here in this verse. Look at this again. We are to experientially, personally know Jesus Christ and experientially and personally, in a powerful way, know the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, I want you to see just a general observation of the implications of the resurrection. It's who Jesus is. It's our message. We can suffer persecution for it. And we're to know it experientially. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, and know it in a powerfully personal way. Now, I want to close our time this morning, in the next few minutes, as we look at what I call the resurrection repercussions on the Trinity. What were the resurrection repercussions, for example, on God the Father? Well, if you can, turn with me, if you would, to um, Genesis chapter three, fifteen. It says this, that I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is in the Garden of Eden. This is the curse given to the serpent who is a a symbol of Satan. You've heard me talk about this before. I won't go in at great length, but basically there are going to be from the eve two offspring, two lines of people. The children of God and the children of Satan. And there will be strife or conflict between both of them. And at one point in time in history, he, meaning Satan, is going to strike the heel of one of the descendants of Eve, meaning Jesus Christ, that's referring to his death. But this person, this Messiah, the Son of God, is going to have the more fatal blow, the more stronger blow. He will crush the head of the serpent. This is a reference to, theologians believe, the resurrection. So this is from the very beginning, and I want you to see the impact or the implications of the resurrection on God the Father. So we see that this was part of his plan from the beginning. Now turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2, 23 through 33. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen upon him, and he's preaching. Notice what he preaches, and particularly I want you to pay attention to three times that he mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here we go, verse 24. What happened? God raised him up, the resurrection, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now Peter is quoting David in Psalm 16 in the Old Testament, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus, and here we go again, God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. So again, Peter is preaching the resurrections. Three times he talks about or references to the resurrection. Here's the point. God spoke through King David in the Old Testament and promised that he would raise up his Messiah, his son, from the dead. Genesis 3 tells us this was God's plan from the very beginning. Now, the point is this. How did the resurrection impact God the Father? Well, God's character, his truthfulness, his faithfulness, all of that, the promise he made, his character was on trial. Would he keep his promise? And, of course, the answer is a resounding yes. He did keep his promise. It was his plan from the very beginning, and that's the point. God the Father planned and promised the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So yeah, the resurrection impacted God the Father. What are some resurrection repercussions on the Son of God? With turning your Bibles to Colossians 1, 15 through 18. You'll find this. Speaking of Jesus Christ, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now the reason Jesus Christ is the preeminent one is because he is the firstborn from the dead. Now what does that phrase mean, firstborn from the dead? It's referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's the point. Jesus' rank as the preeminent one, you see in the slide up here, it is Utterly dependent upon his resurrection. Did you know that? Turn, or you can look at Acts chapter 2. Let's go back to Peter's sermon, the day of Pentecost. He says this This Jesus God raised up, and of all that, and of that, we are all witnesses. We just read that. Jump ahead to verse 36. It says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now the word certain there is an interesting word. It means to have no doubts. So what is the implication of the resurrection on Jesus Christ? It's also this. With perfect certainty, folks, we know by what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ that Jesus is made Lord in Christ. So he's made, his rank as the preeminent one is dependent upon the resurrection. His rank or his position as Lord of all is dependent upon the resurrection. And in Romans chapter one, verse four, we read this. It was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It was in the resurrection that God declared Jesus to be his son. Now the word declare it's an interesting Greek word too. It's the Greek word horizo. We get our word horizon from that. Now, have you ever seen the movie Forrest Gump? He's jogging in the desert at the end of the movie, and he looks off to the right, and he can you know you see the horizon, the sun. I think it was either rising or setting. It was hard to see the horizon, the line, but it was still there. And the horizon is just that clear line that marks out the difference between the, the sky and the earth. And what Paul is saying here is that Jesus was clearly marked out as unique from all of the universe by what his resurrection from the dead so Jesus's rank as the preeminent one Jesus being lord and Jesus being the son of God depend upon his resurrection from the dead and what finally what are some resurrection repercussions On the Holy Spirit. Turn to John chapter 16, verses 7 to 14. You find this Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things. That are to come. Now, in these verses, you kind of can see the the twofold work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8, we find the ministry of the Holy Spirit to unbelievers. He convicts of sin. And specifically, he convicts of sin that, yeah, you're a sinner. You have a very serious sin problem. That the righteous life that you are trying to live isn't good enough. And that, yeah, I've judged the world. I'll judge even Satan. I can certainly judge you. And to the believer, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to guide. It provides leadership, guidance, direction in the life of the believer. So the work of the Holy Spirit in the unbeliever and in the believer is dependent upon what event? the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, the Holy Spirit does not come. He will not send the Holy Spirit. And that would mean, I mean, just think about this for a moment. Nobody would come to Christ. Nobody. There'd be no energizing work in an unbeliever to convict him of his sin, to see the wretched person that that he or she is in view of who God is. And to the believer that has ever experienced guidance from the Holy Spirit, that would be no more. You're on your own. Now we looked at Acts chapter 2 earlier. I want to go back there again into verses 33 and 34. And you'll notice what Peter says, and he is really effective in this. It's very powerful. He says this, speaking to the people being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. What's this referring to? Well, again, a day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. What did the crowds witness? Well, they witnessed these people, these disciples, speaking in, in tongues that were human foreign languages that they never knew before, that the foreigners around there heard them speaking in their native tongue and heard them praising God. And they felt a sting, a conviction for what had happened to Jesus Christ. All of that was happening because of the promised coming of the Holy Spirit. And why was that happening? Because of the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Let me just rephrase, and kind of sum up for you. The impact that the resurrection had on the Trinity, on God. The very function of the Trinity, folks, the role of God the Father, the role of God the Son, and the role of God the Holy Spirit depends on the resurrection. No resurrections mean God the Father is not who he claimed to be. He was either unwilling or or unable to resurrect his son from the dead. No resurrection means that the Son of God wasn't exalted to the right hand of the Father. He does not rank as the preeminent one. He is not Lord. He is even not the Son of God. No resurrection means that the Holy Spirit has not come. No one is convicted of sin, and no one is guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, we began this sermon, I want to close with a story, but we began this sermon by looking at Jesus' claim to be the resurrection and the life. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus proved this claim by raising three people from the dead. The widow of Nain's son, in Luke chapter 7, Jairus' daughter in Luke chapter 8, and Lazarus in John chapter 11. Now the scriptures go on to say that his disciples even raised people from the dead. In Acts 9, God resurrects the dead Tabitha or Dorcas through the ministry of Peter. In Acts chapter 20, Eutychus is raised from the dead by the apostle Paul. But I want to close with a a contemporary example or story, rather, of a young boy who was resurrected from the dead. Mahesh Chavda is an evangelist widely known for healing and miracles. In May of 1985, his son Aaron was born four months premature. The doctors gave very little hope that his son would survive. If he did, he would be a vegetable. The problem for Mahesh wasn't just the premature birth of his son, but that he had committed to conduct several crusades in Africa. As he and his wife prayed, they felt that God was telling them that Mahesh should go. And I just can't imagine this as a father. Mahesh said goodbye to his newborn son with full knowledge that he may never see him again live. Or at least this side of heaven. Now weeks later, his son was still alive as Mahesh boarded a plane for Zaire and landed in its capital city of Kinshasa, I think that's how you say it, on Sunday, June 9th, 1985. Now at the Crusades, people were miraculously healed. Many came to faith in Christ. But by Wednesday, June 12th, the morning crowd alone swelled to 30,000 people. That morning, Mulamba Manakai was standing in the crowd. When Mulamba had returned home from the crusade the previous day, on a Tuesday, June 11th, he found his six-year-old son, Katshinyi, paralyzed and in a coma. Mulamba and his older brother, Kuamba, carried the little boy to the medical facility nearby, where he was diagnosed with cerebral malaria. And Mulamba was instructed to take his son to a nearby clinic for treatment. And at 4 a.m. on Wednesday morning, six-year-old Katshinyi had a spasm, and he stopped breathing. His heart then stopped beating, and he died in his father's arms. The physicians tried to revive him, but were unable to. Mulamba was then directed to go to the nearby hospital and get a death certificate to bury his son. And upon arriving at the hospital, the boy was once again pronounced dead. Mulamba left his son's body at the hospital with his brother so he could go borrow money to buy a burial permit. On his way, Mulamba asked God to raise his son from the dead if it would bring glory to God. And Mulamba heard God speak these words, Why are you weeping? My servant Is in this city. Go to him. Nimblama knew the Lord was referring to Mahesh, so he rushed to the crusade on Wednesday morning in a crowd of 30,000 people, and he arrived just as Mahesh had finished his message. Now, exactly 12 noon, eight hours after Kachinyi had died, Mahesh stepped back from the microphone. He then heard the gentle voice of the Holy Spirit said to him, there is a man here whose son has died this morning. Invite him to come forward. I want to do something wonderful for him. Mahesh repeated what the Holy Spirit said to him and instantly Mulamba ran forward shouting, it is I, it is I. Mahesh laid his hands on Mulamba's head and prayed that God would resurrect his son back from the dead and the crowd parted as Mulamba turned and ran to the hospital. And Here's what happened at the hospital at exactly 12 noon on June 12, 1985, while Mahesh was praying over Mulamba. Mulamba's brother, Kulamba, was still holding the lifeless body of Katshinyi in his arms when he felt the body move. And then the boy sneezed. And then Katchini sat up, and asked for food, and called for his father. God had brought him back from the dead. Now God rewarded Mahesh for his faithfulness in two ways. First, he let him participate in a miraculous resurrection from the dead. And second, God remembered Mahesh's son Aaron and completely healed him. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. Yeah, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has far-reaching implications even in the years, thousands of years afterwards. Let's not put the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the back burner anymore. The New Testament church lived as if it were central to their lives. It is to be something that is, we're to live resurrected lives every day. And we live those lives because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like you to think about that for this week. By the way, there's a picture of Mulamba and Kachini. You can order that DVD if you want and hear this story, just so you know that I'm not making this up. but I want you to spend time this week praising God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, none of us would be listening online. None of the people that are in churches today would be here apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has deeply and profoundly impacted our lives. And it is not a message that is to simply be heard on Easter Sunday. It affected you, and it affects us. And next week we'll talk about how it affected even the angels. And so strengthen us to remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to praise him for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.